The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Good morning. This is the uh, first time I've come up to someone who was at the mic that was taller than me. <laughs> I hope you all are having a uh, good New Year celebration, and uh, we just thank you all for taking the time to uh, join with us this morning. Uh, we are continuing through our series on the book of uh, Matthew. So we did not choose to talk about Jesus not bringing peace but a sword on Chinese New Year. Uh, that just happened to come up. I do want to pose a question before we begin this morning. What do you think draws Jesus' heart for compassion? Of all of the things that could make Jesus compassionate, all of the things that could draw out his compassion, what do you think that would be? Well, maybe it would be sickness or... Maybe it'd be people with disease. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Our overall theme this morning is Jesus' heart for the lost. That's going to be our first point as well. And our other two points, I believe, flow from this. Once we understand Jesus' heart for the lost, then we see that Jesus sends his disciples, and then Jesus tells us that there is a cost of following him. So we're going to see Jesus' heart for the lost, Jesus sending his disciples, and the cost of following Jesus. This is coming right off the end of where we were last week in Matthew 9, and so let me pray, and then we will dive into the text. God, I thank you for your word and the truth that is held within it. Father, I pray that you would help us see the truth this morning. Help us to apply this to our context in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in 2023. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Jesus' heart for the lost, that is our first point this morning. And I want us to just take a short uh, break and remember and remind us of where we were last week. So if you were here with us last week, we ended looking at the mercy of Jesus. We saw Jesus as he healed sick people, as he cast out demons, as he raised a woman from the dead. And we saw that Jesus was merciful and so merciful that he went to blind people who couldn't see and he touched them. He went and healed people. He cast out those that were afflicted with demons. And we said that Jesus is merciful. And here, as we begin in 935 through 38, we see Jesus' compassion. And I don't think these two are uh, meant to be separated. These are linked together. And so as we concluded last week by looking at the mercy of Jesus and that no person exists who is outside of the kindness and care of Jesus, the first section we're looking at this morning, Jesus' heart for the lost, it continues that idea. And it serves as a bridge between Jesus' mercy and his commissioning or sending out of his apostles. The other two points that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus sending out the apostles and the cost of following Jesus, would not occur if Jesus did not have compassion for the lost. If Jesus saw the lost and surrounded and was like, oh well, then the, the rest of the instructions for being sent out, the cost of following Jesus wouldn't occur here. But because of Jesus' heart for the lost, he sends his apostles, and he sends them even to dangerous places. So let's jump into the text, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. We're told here that Jesus has gone throughout um, all of the cities and villages, 
Uh, I'm not sure if that's hyperbolic or if that's literal, but you know, the point is that Jesus has gone to a lot of places and he understands the people. He understands who these people are, what they're like, their lifestyle. And Jesus, he understands them. And he has this appraisal at the end of going through all of these towns and cities. And it says, Jesus saw them that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I was a little confused on what harassed and helpless meant. And I went to the Christian Standard Bible, and I thought that that the language they used there was a little more understanding. Jesus said there that the people were distressed and dejected. I think that's a little more natural language for us than harassed and helpless. These people were distressed and dejected. And how did Jesus look at them then? Well, he was drawn to them with compassion. The text tells us that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Occasionally we talk about sheep and their state in life without shepherds, but just as a reminder, sheep without a shepherd, that was not a good diagnosis. There's kind of three things that shepherdless sheep could do. They could be captured by prey, overtaken by disease, or get lost and starve to death, right? This was not a good thing. To say someone was a sheep without a shepherd was a bad diagnosis. And so Jesus looks at these people from all of the cities, all of the villages. He says they are distressed and dejected, and they are like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' heart is drawn out towards these helpless, shepherdless people. But it's drawn out in a way that isn't necessarily obvious unless we understand it in the context of what's going on here, right? He doesn't give them money. He doesn't go and heal their diseases or heal their afflictions. We're not even told if they have monetary problems or if they have problems with diseases, but we're told that they are shepherdless. Matthew tells us that he has compassion for them, and we're left to ask, well, how exactly did he have compassion for them? If you'll remember back to last week, in the beginning of our text, Jesus came up to this paralytic man. He couldn't walk, and yet the very first thing that Jesus did, his heart was immediately drawn to the greatest problem of this man, and that was sin. This paralytic man couldn't walk, and Jesus comes up and says, son, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And so I believe that Jesus' compassion, the compassion which he has for these people which are distressed and dejected without a shepherd is a response orientated around their greatest need, namely the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' concern for them wasn't so much physical as it was eternal. Jesus saw that the need they had, he'd seen their lifestyle the way that they were living outside of his kingdom, outside of the kingdom of heaven, and his compassion, his heart stirred up and was drawn to them. He saw their greatest need, that was sin. So Jesus says then that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then he asks his followers, he asks the apostles to pray for more workers to go into the harvest. So what does that mean, right? It seems kind of like a quick turn. Is Jesus wanting us to pray for increased crop yields and more farmers? Uh, I don't think so, right? Jesus is simply using the harvest and farmers as a metaphor. He's looking at 
this multitude of people in all of the cities, in all of the villages, and his appraisal is, is that they are lost. They are outside of the kingdom of heaven, but they're ready to be harvested, it seems. He says that the harvest is plentiful, but there's not enough people to bring in the harvest. And what a just terrible state to be in, to have so much crop ready to be harvested, to have such a great yield, but to not be able to pull in the harvest, to leave so much crop just sitting in the field, right? I mean, just literally think about if you are a farmer and you've spent your entire year waiting for this harvest and it you know, exploded ten, tenfold, a hundredfold beyond what you thought, but then you didn't have enough help to reap the harvest. And that's what Jesus is looking at here. He sees these people that they are sheep without a shepherd. They're dejected, but they're ready to be harvested. They're ready to be brought into the kingdom of God, it seems. But Jesus says there's not enough people. So as we consider the state of losses in Jesus' day, he says that it was vast. He says that the harvest was plentiful, and even in his day, there were not enough workers to bring in the harvest. But then I think that should cause us to think about our day and where we are today, right? You know, sociological data shows us that although there was great lostness in Jesus' day, we are covered in lostness in our world today. I think the current estimates globally are around 4.5 billion people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a vast field ready to be harvested. And that's something that we as a church cannot do ourselves, right? And I think that's what motivates Jesus' next action. When Jesus sees the great lostness, he sees that these people are ready to be harvested, to be brought into the kingdom of God. He goes and forms a committee. No. <laughs> he comes up with an elaborate missiological strategy that knows just how to meet their needs. No. What does he do? He sees the lostness and the great need, and he prays. And what a humbling point that is for us today. Do we truly believe that our prayers can make a difference in the lives of other people? Do we truly believe that our prayers can help push back lostness, not only across our city and across our country, but around the world? That was Jesus' primary action and move of compassion. When he saw the shepherdless people, his first thing, not last resort, but his first best option was to pray. Church, you know, we've started to cultivate this heart of prayer for the lost, right? I know a lot of us participated in this 90 for 9 initiative that we had at the end of last year. And may our heart for the lost and our prayer for the lost not have ended in, was it December 4th or December 11th, whenever we ticked off 90 on that card, right? That's a lifestyle that we're trying to build up in us. That wasn't just 90 days and did it, hope it worked. No, this is something that we should be cultivating for our life. Cultivating as we're doing that, as we're praying, cultivating a heart like Jesus is 
for the lost. So Jesus sees the helpless and the harassed, the distressed and the dejected, and he says to the disciples to pray for more workers, more laborers to go into the harvest. There was too big of a need. So Jesus and the disciples had to pray. But then they didn't just stop there, right? They prayed and then they were compelled to act and move. And Jesus instructed them and sent them out. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we move through the rest of the passage. So Jesus' heart for the lost. That's our first point as we see Jesus look upon the helpless and have compassion on them. But as I said earlier, I've also titled the entire sermon, Jesus' Heart for the Lost. And uh, nine times out of ten, if I'm preaching, disregard the sermon title. Um, it's just something I think of when the uh, person who's doing social media for that week messages me. You know, sorry. Insight into how we're doing things here. But this time, uh, I think it makes sense that Jesus' heart for the lost is the overarching thing that is fueling his sending when he's commissioning the disciples and instructing them. And it's informing even where he's sending them, which, as we read in the text, is some pretty dangerous and bleak places. If Jesus did not so love the lost, if he did not so love and care for these people that he saw, he wouldn't send his disciples to them, and he certainly wouldn't send them to dangerous places, to be sheep amongst wolves. Again, not a good place to be if you're a sheep. But that's exactly what we see happening in this text. And so that brings us to point two. Jesus sends the apostles. And this we're going to be looking through uh, Matthew 10, 1 through to verse 15. During this segment of the text, there are uh, two main things that are occurring. Uh, The first is a listing of the 12 apostles along with the authority that Jesus commissioned them out with. And then the second is a set of instructions uh, which Jesus gave to them for their journey. Uh, Before we go on to the instructions, I know that's probably the place that most of our eyes jump first. We normally just scan over and we're like, yeah, 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 those 12 guys got it, right? Uh, But I do want to slow down and stop because I think that Matthew, by way of the Holy Spirit, is giving us something that's really important here. As we look at these names of the 12 apostles, we see something that the gospel brings unlikely people together. That might not jump out at our faces immediately, but as we scan through the list, Matthew has given us titles of two people that show that they were an unlikely pair to be brought together. Last week, we spent a little time looking at tax collectors. And if you remember, tax collectors in the passage last week were used almost synonymously with sinners. Uh, These were not people that were held in high repute in the community in Jesus' time. They were often known to upcharge or overcharge the people that they were collecting taxes from. They would keep money for themselves. And for those with a Jewish background, they were seen as a symbol of the Roman government, which they saw as a symbol of Roman oppression, right? And so we see here that Matthew is labeled as a tax collector. Well, then on the other end of the spectrum, we have these fellows called zealots. And zealots were individuals who believed that the Jews should be ruling Israel and that these Roman fellows should go back to Rome and get out of here. And the zealots were kind of prepared to do uh, whatever they could to send the Romans packing. 
As the name implies, they were zealous, and they wanted to often, by any means, overthrow the Roman government and those who worked for her, such as tax collectors, right? And so here we see a list of two people, unlikely, a tax collector and a zealot, both of them brought together by Jesus. By showing both these titles, we get a glimpse of Jesus's power to bring a tax collector and a zealot together. Okay, so that's just a little look at Jesus's power to bring people together. That's not even the main bulk of the passage we're looking at, but that's, you know, free on top of tuition. You don't have to pay for that, right? That's just a little added bonus there. So after this brief look at how Jesus brings people together, we come to the main bulk of the passage here on the instructions, right? Matthew 10, 5 through 15. And there's four main instructions uh, that we're going to see. Jesus told one, he told them to only go to the Jews, right? He said, don't enter the towns of the Samaritans, don't go to the Gentiles, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we're going to ask, what's that all about? Uh, Two, he told them to go proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Three, uh, he told them not to carry many supplies. And then fourth, and finally in this section, he told the apostles that if someone rejects them and rejects this message, it would be better for them, it would be better for to be Sodom and Gomorrah than that town or that house. So these are uh, four kind of main instructions or main things that we see going on as Jesus is commissioning these people out, and we will deal with each of them one by one as we go. So the first question I want us to think through is why does Jesus send his apostles only to the Jews, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? You know, it was a question I really wanted to know and I wanted to have answered for you, but the truth is, is that Matthew and Jesus don't give us an answer. The text just doesn't tell us why Jesus sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Tells us that he sent them there. Tells them not to go to the Gentiles, not to go to the towns of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim this message. But he doesn't give us a reason why. Clearly tells them to go there, but doesn't give us a reason why. And I was thinking, I was like, man, what's, what's that all about, right? But I think that that's a lesson for us in and of itself. That we're to follow and to obey even if we don't know where or why God is calling us. And that's not a new theme in the Bible. All the way back to Genesis 12, God has been preparing this theme as he called Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans. He said, yeah, I'm going to take you to a place where I'm going to show you in the future. Don't worry about it, right? Later on in the story of Abraham, Abraham takes his son Isaac. They've got the wood. They've got the fire. They've got, found the altar, but there's no, there's no sheep. There's nothing to slaughter. And Well, Abram and Isaac, they trust God, and they go together to the place, right? Even when we don't know why or where God is calling us, we need to trust on his authority as the one who calls Jesus called the apostles to go to the Jews in this instance, but as we see from the rest of Scripture, and if you have already finished your final equip group um, from passages such as Mark chapter 7 and from Acts 10, the Gentiles have clearly been grafted in. The Gentiles, us, like that's the reason we're here today, we have been clearly been welcomed into the kingdom of God. 
So in this instance, in Matthew 10, Jesus was sending his apostles to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But as we move throughout the story of the Bible, we see that all people, including us, the Gentiles, are clearly welcomed in. So the second question we want to ask is, why were they proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Why not just go out and do all these wonderful miracles and heal all these people? Wouldn't that just be enough, right? Well, when they went around healing and performing miracles and these wondrous signs, they weren't meant to be making a name for themselves. In other words, if Peter healed someone, the point of that wasn't to be, hey, great job, Peter, you're such a great healer, I'm going to go follow you. No. Rather, when the apostles acted, it was meant to be a reflection of the kingdom of heaven. The acts and teachings which they were doing were meant to point to Jesus and point to his kingdom and to bring them into the kingdom itself. And again, I think this is a lesson for us. As we go about the act of trying to make disciples and share the gospel, are we doing it for ourselves? Are we making this about us, or are we doing this only for the sake of God's glory? So the third question is, why were the disciples told to bring such little stuff? Right, we saw that they were not meant to, they, they were not meant to acquire gold or silver or copper, uh, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff. They were meant to, you know, kind of pack light, meant to go quickly. The notes I read on this showed that th this was rather pragmatic, that this was meant to be a short trip and that Jesus did not want them to be bogged down or weighed down by things. He did not want them to be distracted by taking undue possessions with them. And so while this is a pragmatic reason, I think it serves as a good diagnostic question for us this morning. Are we letting things distract us or get in the way of sharing Jesus' message? You know, maybe it's work. Maybe I just need to get that next promotion, and then I'll have so much money that I can fund missions myself, right? Church, you don't need a missions office anymore. I'll just fund them all. Maybe it's family. Maybe once the kids graduate and move out of the house, then I'll have more free time and more money to spend welcoming people into the house and going on mission. Or maybe it's church. Maybe you already do so much already, and hey, you're serving God in this way. Do you really need to serve him in this other way? During this week, I you know, pray that you would pray and ask God to Reveal if there's anything in your life that's distracting you from following him in this way. Is there anything in your life that is distracting you from sharing the gospel with those around you? And then, like, that's the easy question, right? It's asking for him to reveal that. And then it's praying for the strength to put that distraction on the altar to give it to God and say, you are worth more to me than, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever that is. And that leads us to our last question to think about from these instructions. Why in the world 
was it going to be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than the town or the house which doesn't listen to the apostle? Maybe a brief bit of background um, would be helpful as a refresher. Um, so Sodom and Gomorrah is seen in the Old Testament book of Genesis and essentially is just notorious for debauchery. This is not a great place. And as we see it throughout the Bible, um, Sodom and Gomorrah is not looked back on with fondness. It's normally seen as a marker of destruction. Um, and the town ultimately was destroyed via a divine fire. So that is what we're looking at. And Jesus says that it'd be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the town or village or house which rejects the apostles. And I think this is really where Jesus um, puts his cards on the table, so to speak. This is where he reveals the gravity and the stakes of what's going on here with this message. Rejecting the message and the messenger led to those people who rejected it being cut off eternally from God, separated from God eternally in hell. That was their state in sin. Sin had purchased for them a one-way ticket to eternal separation and destruction apart from God. And there's a weight and an urgency that should stir up in us when we hear that, right? This was not good news. It was not good news for Sodom and Gomorrah. They're already long gone. This was bad news for the town or the house or the village that did not accept this message. Because the reality of the town or the house or the village that rejected this message was that they had an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. They had an opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins and receive life, and they rejected it. And as real as this urgency and weight of lostness was in Matthew 10, it is real today in our city, in our nation, and in our world. People are dying all around us, and they are spending life separated in suffering, and some of them without ever even hearing the name of Christ. Some of them don't even know the bad news that they're living in sin, much less to be able to accept the good news, that there is a Savior who has compassion for them. There is a God who loved them enough to die for them, to take on their penalty so that they can have life. This is real. This is the reality, and this is the gut check time that Jesus gives for the apostles, right? This is the reason that they're going. This is the reason his heart was drawn out for these people because he knew the reality of where they were going apart from him. And this should lead us to soberly and somberly consider what that means for our friends and our family and our workplace and our city. There's vast lostness around us. That's why Jesus' heart was drawn out to the people in Matthew 9, 6. And that's why, church, I pray our heart is drawn out to those around us today. Without 
Christ, life is bound to an eternity separated from him. I know it's not cheery and chipper on Chinese New Year, but this is the reality of what we're looking at in the text this morning. Jesus paints a clear picture of the reality of those apart from him. He said it's better to, it was better to be scorched in fire in Sodom and Gomorrah than to have the potential of hearing my words and reject them. Jesus clearly had a heart and compassion for the lost. This led him to pray for workers to be sent into the harvest, and it led him to sending out his apostles. Had Jesus not cared for the lost, he wouldn't have sent his apostles. He wouldn't have sent them to share the good news. He wouldn't have tried to bring other people into the kingdom of heaven. But he cared for them, and as we saw in our second point, Jesus sent his apostles. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, and that is the cost of following Jesus. So again, we see Jesus' heart is so drawn to the lost that he sends his apostles to dangerous places for the sake of the lost. There are some rather uh, startling truths that Andrew read as we went through the passage um, and some beautiful and remarkable promises um, all tied up in Matthew 10, 16 through 11, 1. Truths such as being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves, or what follows that, that you will be dragged before governors and kings, you will be flogged in synagogues. Not great things. Kind of a sobering picture that Jesus is sending his troops out into. This isn't really the battle cry that you would expect, but he's painting a picture of the reality. And all the while, he's giving us a glimpse at his heart. He loves the law so much and so desires for them to be brought into the kingdom that he's willing to send his apostles into harm's way for the sake that they might bring these sheepless people into the shepherdless people into the fold. But there's also amazing promises that we see here, such as when persecution comes, we don't need to be anxious. The Spirit is going to speak through us. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't, I don't really know what that would look like. Um, you know, I, I'm thankful that God gives us that promise. I'm thankful that the Spirit is going to speak through us in that moment. But that's, that's an amazing promise. You know, I want us to focus on two points. There's so many things that we could spend our time uh, diving into um, from Matthew 10, 16 through 11, 1. But I want us to focus on two, two things, two questions. One, um, what does Jesus say, or maybe more importantly, what does Jesus not say about family in this section? And then two, what or how does it look to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We will start with the second question. What does it look like or how does it look like to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves? Let me read for us Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. 
So first off, the reason he uses these two animals is that serpents were known to be shrewd and craftful and wise, and the dove was known as this innocent creature. And so Jesus is saying, as you go out, one, yes, you're going out as sheep in the midst of wolves, but go out being wise and crafty and creative, but also innocent. So what does that mean? Well, again, maybe let's start with what does that not mean? It's not an invitation to throw out our biblical ethics. It's not an invitation or a license to do any action for the sake of the gospel. The way we bring the gospel to people should not be a hindrance to the gospel itself. If we are using illicit activities to bring the gospel, that's going to be a hindrance. I heard it said like this once way, that the only offense of the gospel should be the gospel itself. What does that mean? I mean, the gospel is, it's an offensive message, right? It's looking at someone who's lived their whole life by themselves and are saying, you cannot save yourself. What you've been doing, it's leading you, as Christ said, on a road to hell, suffering, and separation. But there's good news. The good news is that Christ died for you. So the offense of the gospel should be the only offense we bring when we share the gospel. So it's not an invitation to throw out our ethics. It's not a license to do whatever act we want. The way we bring the gospel to people should not hinder the gospel. So how can we be tactful as sheep in the midst of wolves? Well, I think we can use natural channels and friendships and relationships that we are already in. As we think about the lostness in our city and even some of the wisdom we need to employ to love our city well, use the relationships and the channels that you're already in. You have relationships in your community, your neighborhood, your apartment complex, maybe at your workplace, Maybe it's in your family, or maybe you and your friends all go to the same tea shop or coffee shop once a week, and you see the workers there all the time. Maybe you are on a football club, or maybe you play badminton. Whatever these things are that you enjoy doing, these natural channels that bring you in contact, in relationship with other people, use those. We don't have to be like, okay, those are my football friends, now I need to find other friends that I can try to share the gospel with because those can't overlap. No, if God has given you relationships, praise God for that and think about how you can leverage those relationships, how you can love those people and share the gospel with them. So that's one, is using these natural channels, these natural relationships that God has given us. Another is using the abilities and resources that God has given us, the talents that God has given us to you know, create businesses or jobs or things that lead to legitimacy and sustainability. The uh, pastor at uh, the church I was a part of back in Birmingham uh, was spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to get uh, gospel workers into you know, countries in Central Asia and Middle East where it's hard to do that. And he met this fella who sells timber from the middle of nowhere, Alabama, sells timber, and he's like, oh yeah, I go to this country, this country, this country, this country, and it's all these places that our pastor is trying to send people. 
He's like, oh my goodness, have you ever thought of, you know, sharing the gospel when you take timber to these people? Right? God has given us in our globalized world the ability to do businesses in hard-to-reach places. God has given us the ability to hop on Zoom calls and do seminars with people from all over the world. And so as we have these abilities and these resources and these talents that God has given us, we can use them for legitimacy and we can use them as a way to bring the gospel to people. So we want to be smart and not damage the witness in trying to be shrewd. So use the talents, use the abilities that God has given you to place the gospel in front of others. So the second question that I want to ask this morning is, what does Jesus say about family in this section? And there's two bits that he talks about family. The first is 10, 21 through 25, and the second is 10, 34 through 39. Let me read them again for us. 10, 21 through 25. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. To the, um, but, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Then jumping down to 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So I want to start just, what does this not mean? Well, one, it, it does not mean that Jesus wants you to hate and dishonor your family. Right? Again, from the fifth commandment throughout the Bible, we've seen that Jesus wants us to honor and love our parents. It also does not mean that Jesus delights in this. Jesus does not take delight in the separation that he is talking about here in families. And it also doesn't mean that all families will end up like this. Not all families are going to have brothers turning on brothers, right? There's two instances we see, um, 21 through 25, where Jesus is talking about families, and again in 34 through 39. In the first, we see Jesus saying that persecution would be so intense that your non-believing family would turn on you. So Jesus is saying here in 21, as he's looking at the brother will deliver brother, the father his child, child will rise up. He's saying that the persecution of, for the apostles could become so intense that the non-believing family members would rise up against him. They would turn them in, submit them to the authorities. But there's even a comfort that he offers in the midst of this. 
that those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who carry his name, those who do not forsake the name of the gospel to the end would be saved. And then there's another comfort there as well, that we're not on this road alone. They hated Christ, and they hate us as well, right? A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Jesus has gone on this road before to be persecuted and hated by the world. And so in that way, we have a, we're uniquely able to relate to him, or he's uniquely able to relate to us in that challenge and suffering. In the second portion of 34 through to 39, Jesus uses this example of a sword, uh, right? What does that mean? He talks about a sword and the example of people being separated by belief. Again, this does not mean that physical harm uh, will come, that Christians are going to bring physical harm via sword or something like that. But that belief and practice may lead to separation on this earth. Jesus is saying that the sword represents a separation of belief and practice that may come on this earth, but it would ultimately come in eternity. Right? We already walked through and looked at the future of those who are not following Christ, the future of those who are not in the kingdom of heaven, and it's separation from God. But those who are in the kingdom of heaven, they will live an eternity with God. And so this sword is representing how people would be separated via their belief in eternity. Well, what does that mean for us in our non-believing family? I think one thing to think through on this side of eternity is that there may come a time when your beliefs separate you, so to speak, or they make you look different than your family. And perhaps this week, as some of you have been uh, traveling and doing reunion dinners and talking and thinking about Chinese New Year and celebrations like that, there may be practices and things that have already stood out there. But again, I want to reiterate that this is not Jesus's desire. Jesus's desire is not that the families be separated by belief, that the families be separated by the sword, right? His desire is that your lost family would come into the kingdom of heaven with you. And so I think as we reflect on those in our families that are lost, those that don't know Christ, we should pray and we should seek to share the gospel to that end. In verse 39, Jesus calls us ultimately to follow his example by dying to ourselves to find life in him. That's how he closes this section, that whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a uh, book I read a, a few years ago um, by an American missionary, and it's called uh, Lives Given, Not Taken. 
And this book shares the story of a handful of Christians who went to other parts of the world and their life on earth was ultimately ended by people who killed them because they were trying to share the gospel. But the whole thesis of this book was that their lives, though they were killed, their lives were not taken by someone else, but their lives had already been given in willful service to Christ. Their lives were given regardless of the cost so that no one could take their life. They gave their lives willingly to Jesus so their lives were not taken upon death. They had already given them to Christ and for the sake of the lost. I think that's a reminder for us and should help reframe how we think about this. When we give our lives to Christ, come what may, we can trust in him, right? That's what the verse says. Jesus says here that we are not meant to fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He comforts us by reminding that he knows the birds and the sparrows and we are worth more than many birds and many sparrows. And he reminds us that those who acknowledge him before men, he will acknowledge before the Father. So even in the midst of this persecution, there is comfort. And then how does Jesus close? In verse 42, he says, Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And even in that closing, Jesus' heart of compassion shines through. You know, little ones is often a term that's synonymous with those who are lacking or needing. And here at the close, Jesus' heart of compassion shines through. So Jesus loves the lost. He saw them in, John, or in Matthew 9, 36, and he had compassion for them. And that fueled him to send out his apostles, and to send them even in the dark and hard and challenging places where there would be persecution. But he gave them comfort that ultimately they were safe in him. I think for us, there's a reminder here that all of us who are in Christ, at one time he looked on us with that same compassion that he looked on with the lost. It was the compassion that Christ saw for you or for me and acted through maybe many family members, many friends, teachers, Sunday school teachers, however the Lord and whoever the Lord used, he acted out of compassion to draw you into his kingdom. Well, church, there is a big lost world out there which needs the love and compassion of Christ and it needs the sharing of the gospel. There are people that need the gospel. And so I think for us, our takeaway is to remember the love of Christ, remember the compassion of Christ and the beauty of the gospel, that once we were separated and alienated from him, but now we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
when we remember the beauty and the majesty of the gospel, that once we were children of wrath separated from God, but now we have been brought near, then it should be a joy to go and share with the lost around us. Jesus loved the shepherdless. His heart was drawn towards them, leading him to pray and send his disciples to dangerous places to bring the lost into God's kingdom. When we see the beauty of the gospel, we can gladly give our lives like Jesus for the sake of the lost. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the love that you gave for us. God, when we were unlovely, you came close. When we were in our sin, you came close. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your life, death, and resurrection that we can know you and share your love with others. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.